Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 7th, 2015. On this week's show, Brian Curtis will join us to talk about the end of college football's regular season and the non-controversial picks for the second-ever college football playoff. Love a raging non-controversy. Former U.S. women's national soccer team defender Stephanie Cox will also be with us to talk about the national team's decision to postpone a game, to cancel a game, on the team's victory tour rather than play on a substandard field. And we'll discuss the 12-0 Carolina Panthers, who may actually have one loss, but I'm told they're undefeated and maybe the worst 12-0 team in NFL history. Or maybe they're great and everyone's just hating. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hates the average amount, I think. Mm-hmm. Hey, Stefan. Yeah, I'm a great hater. Greater. A greater? <laughs> That's one of those... Uh, blended words that actually doesn't, doesn't work because it's yeah it's, it's already word. a word yeah. yeah it's already two words good luck adding that one to the dictionary all right thanks yeah uh with us from new york it's mike pesca host of slate's daily podcast the gist with mike pesca a man with love in his heart i hate to toot my own portmanteau horn and be a portmanteau tutor <laughs> which also doesn't <laughs> that work on, that doesn't work on four levels because <laughs> it's actually a portmanteau it's oh <laughs> come on one level come on <laughs> That's very. Uh, you really, ki- you really kicked him in the shins with your portmanteau. Yeah, you're very. Brutal. You're, ver- you're both childish and supercilious. You're pediatric. <laughs> <laughs> Should we devote all of whimsy to Antonio Brown diving crotch first into the goalpost? Or we also, I have two pieces of Antonio Brown whimsy. There was a I have two piece pieces of Antonio, Antonio Brown on either side of that goalpost. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick word for Odell Beckham Jr. running the hurdles in the end zone. Tribute to his mom, mm-hmm. the hurdler. That was, That's you know, nice. you got to give credit when there's a, a novel end zone celebration. And where everything's he, been done before. And in whose tribute was him kicking the ball on a crucial third down to put him at <laughs> well, fourth and even longer, which he converted, thus uh, <laughs> it, it, establishing his hero stats. They call that delay of game, but he kicked the ball towards, towards the, the line, line of, of scrimmage. scrimmage. They really have, and they have so many balls. They have other right. balls. He didn't delay anything. And I must say, yeah. did he play soccer, Odell Beckham? He did. He yeah, did. I thought I so. It was a nice, he had some nice leg action. So Antonio Brown, 71-yard uh, punt return, celebrated by running crotch first 
into the goalpost, kind of like a wishbone where he played the part of the wishbone. Mm-hmm. He jumped and grabbed on with his legs. I had not speed. seen that before. No, no, at full speed at full is speed. important to note. At full speed. So is, there's other Antonio Brown whimsy. What can match that? Well, this was it was really sort of Pat McAfee, Antonio Brown whimsy. They, they shared a little helmet bump after a punt. Pat McAfee, the punter for the Colts, Antonio Brown on the Steelers. An award in couples, couples whimsy. Couples whimsy. It was a very touching little moment. That's okay. At the end of the punt. All right. You oh, know. That, that, that running into the goalpost thing. One man's whimsy is another man's just two people fist bumping each other. But hey, different teams. It's your journey. It's your journey. They smiled man. at each other. It was a punter. It was a punter. It's my whimsy. The first thing I thought of when when Antonio Brown leaped into the arms of the goalpost was that guy that I did the afterball about, Slobodan Djokovic, who headbutted the stanchion in Greek basketball and left himself paralyzed. The I was terrified of Greek basketball. I was terrified for yeah. Antonio Brown. Yeah. Um, and that is Whimsy Watch. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to uh, talk about Mike Pesca, one of our panelists on this show. He uh, went somewhere. He went to the Inner Sanctum. Mm-hmm. He went to the Sanctum Sanctorum. Is that how you say it? Sanctum Shrimptorum, because there was a lot of all you can eat <laughs> The Sanctum Santorum. Yes. Rick Santorum was there. <laughs> Sanctorum? The, the sanctum prime ribum of uh, this was at MetLife Stadium. Isn't that isn't that what one of the things that the uh, Roadrunner was labeled once as the Coyote <laughs> sanctum, <laughs> sanctum. No sanctum prime ribum. Yeah, it was MetLife. So he went he went to the fancy place, the stadium fancy place. We'll talk about that stadium fancy places um, to hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows. Sign up for Slate Plus and you can get a free two week trial. If you do sign up, so you should sign up uh, at slate.com slash hangup plus. All right, let me start this first segment with a brief history of college football. It'll be brief. Um, college football is the sport that invented trolling. Back in the old days when men like Newt Rockney and Deion Sanders roamed the earth, college football used to troll its fans by refusing to match the best teams in the country against each other and just having old white guys with typewriters or later word processors pick the national champion before the bowl games were even played. Then with the BCS, college football trolled fans by letting nerds with computers choose which two teams played for the championship. From their basements. Yes. Very important. It it Mm -hmm. works better down there. Mm -hmm. And in the four-team college football playoff era, the sport trolls fans by maybe seeding the four teams improperly that will settle the championship on the field. So... They just don't really troll them like they used to in my grandpappy's day. This is just kind of a normal sport now. Uh, the teams in the semifinals on New Year's Eve will be uh, Clemson playing Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl, Alabama versus Michigan State in the Cotton Bowl. Um, these are the four teams everybody expected to make it. And here to talk to us about those teams and those matchups is Brian Curtis, who used to write about college football and other things for Grandland. He will write about college football and other things again somewhere great soon. Hey, Brian. Probably the saddest intro I've ever heard. How are you? <laughs> Ooh, former former writer for the Daily Beast, Brian Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited great. to talk some college football. Uh, what I was trying to get at, Brian, in that intro is that college football used to have this unique position in sports and that all the dumb arguments we have about every sport, like in basketball, who's the best team? Well, they're actually going to settle that in playoffs. So... In college football, those dumb arguments actually were the entire sport. Like right. that's <laughs> that's how the, the intellectual was... basis of the sport. Mm-hmm. I yes. would say that we have found new ways to troll. I think in the uh, Twitter era, mm-hmm. like when they put up the picture. I don't know if you guys saw this on Saturday of the committee room, which you know, since Condi Rice is involved in all this, you may have thought was like a really high tech war room, but in fact looked like a really sad uh, cafeteria where old people eat had spun off his own <laughs> sports bar. Yeah. Well, remember, Condi Rice also presided during the uh, Iraq war. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, uh, and it was like, you know, Barry Alvarez was kind of on the end. And I was like, what does his posture remind me of? And finally fi- figured out it was Jack Germond on the McLaughlin group when he used to be in like, 180 degree, degree reclined pose, you know, watching the proceedings. It was really great. They should recreate that war room. They should they should recreate like the Bush nine eleven war room. They're all looking at the TV. They should do that. All the kind of somebody's mouth is open because Clemson yeah. is beating North Carolina. That'd right. be great. <laughs> so the the question this year, Brian, is like Barry Alvarez did not have to 
tax his brain too uh, hard to decide who is going to be in the playoff. So is this you're an outlier or in this four team era are just the kind of arguments that we have about these teams just like way more picky than they used to be? That's a good question. So Stuart Mandel tweeted, I believe, on the night that uh, on Saturday night says, you know, that in 16 years of reviewing BCS seasons, never once was there a clear cut four teams. This committee gets it in year two. And I sort of think, well, maybe or maybe, you know, we just have four pretty worthy teams and team number five ain't so worthy. And so, you know, we're not we haven't changed what we're arguing about. It just so happens that we were gifted with uh, four teams that seem like pretty clear cut choices. Right. I mean, I don't. I well, don't in any season, the the argument between four and five is just not going to have the same kind of weight, or it's just you you don't feel you, like any team has been particularly wronged. You're right, but you know, don't you know? College football writers would happily get several columns out of the fact if Notre Dame had wound up with one loss, right, mm-hmm. and was the team you know right on the five in the five hole or Stanford. Uh, you know, if Christian McCaffrey had that fantastic game, they'd had one loss instead of two. I mean, I think you would have gotten a ton of controversy about it. I mean, you're right, and not not the epic, you know, who's in the the one two slot, but definitely it would have been a lot of uh, of a lot of craziness. But of all, I mean, okay, one way to look at it is they didn't get it egregiously wrong. Although, if there was no playoffs and it was the old days, it would definitely be Clemson versus Alabama. And all the other one-loss teams would grouse. But really, everyone would know, how do you not let Alabama in? And every computer would say, of course, Alabama's got to be in. And people would say, if anyone earned it, it would be Alabama. So without a playoff, this would be a year without controversy. And really, you have all these other one-loss teams. I'm sure Ohio State's grousing. Basically, it just went, there are some other things involved. But whichever team lost most recently. Uh, the more recent your losses, the more it's disqualifying. So Michigan State loses. Uh, of all the Big Ten teams, they lose earliest. Guess what? They're in. Yeah, they also won their conference, though. So that yeah, was a stated goal, There are three goal, right, Big Ten teams with one loss. And, and the ranking or the, I guess you could say, the worthiness is enti- seems to me to be entirely dependent on how recent that loss was. I think that's right. I think also, you know, when we the uh, committee rankings come out every week, so we're allowed to get really mad at uh, the incomplete, non-binding rankings that come out. I still remember <laughs> such classics as Memphis is getting screwed when Memphis was undefeated <laughs> like a month ago and then proceed to lose their next three games. So I think everybody can sort of extract the kind of vengeance and craziness they want by just attacking the rankings every week. And then, of course, we get to the week like this, and we're like, ah, 14, that sounds pretty good. But isn't there sort of a, a diminishment in that sort of trolling as more people? I mean, look, obviously, there's a lot of irrational people that like college football and talk about it and write about it. But isn't there a little bit of a diminishment in that kind of trolling? Because, you know, the counter is that people are also writing, well, these early rankings don't mean anything. So why don't we just wait? And it seems like more people are kind of sensibly just sort of waiting. I mean, that doesn't help your man. I didn't. Yeah, I don't know what message board you're no. on, but I didn't see any of that this season. <laughs> let's just wait. Let's just let's just pipe down until the end of the season. I'm sure this will all work itself out. And maybe that was written. So maybe on Slate.com, but I did not read it anywhere. Else. <laughs> Stefan uh, is a lurker on ReasonableCollegeFootballFan.com. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody actually posts there, and it's only Stephen Lurking. It's weird. The world is moving toward an era of rationality. It's not happening. But as far as you know, it's seeming kind of preordained that these were the teams that were going to make it. I think I think you're right, Brian, that that's like a retrospective thing. And if you look at all of the luck each of these teams had to have to make it in, Alabama wins the SEC only because Ole Miss lost to Arkansas on that like. Fourth and twenty-five lateral, where the tight end throws it completely blind back over his head, and the dude catches it and just runs in the opposite direction. Otherwise, Alabama probably not in the playoff. Michigan State gets in because of that absurd punt at the end of the Michigan game that they run back. Oklahoma gets in because TCU's third-string quarterback misses an obvious chance to just run straight up the middle on a two-point conversion. Clemson is really the only team, and I'm sure we could come up with a scenario. But they're the only team that didn't have like a like unbelievably lucky moment to get them in. Yeah, it's like everyone had a bush push this year. Sort of felt like you know, like some strange thing. That's like the wonder of college football, right? Is there's all this really strange kind of semi bad play baked into something, and then you know, like you said, retrospectively, we all think it's destiny. But in fact, it was just something really bizarre that got all those teams there. I love it. 
Well, Mark D'Antonio, the Michigan State coach, said that it was God that put them in the in the playoff. Oh, God, that means I can't root for them anymore? <laughs> That's right. definitely what that you know, means. We've been talking about the NFL, that a lot of the back this is like the year of the backup quarterback, right? There's a lot of year of the backup quarterback in college football this year, too. TCU and Baylor and Michigan State and all these guys playing huge games with uh, with their backups in there and winning them a lot of the time, too. As long as, this, as long as the backup writes the starter's name on a wristband, it's cool. It's like you're you're riding along with God. Five thirty eight says uh, that Oklahoma and Alabama are the likely national title final championship trophy. What's that trophy? Doctor Pepper, trophy I hope the crystal Doctor Pepper. Yeah, I think it's Doctor Doctor Pepper. That's important. Um, that they're the, like this is very. It's a Keith Jackson final if that were to happen. Oklahoma, Alabama. Um, do you, do you envision that happening, Brian Curtis? Sage of college football? I think so. I was amused that, you know, the committee, the college football committee, then, you know, spends whatever amount of time they spend coming up with these rankings to really rank the teams in order of goodness. And then Vegas, like, spends one half a second going, yeah, that's not so, not so much Alabama and Oklahoma, the two best teams in, the, in this field, not so much Clemson, who you've, you've given number one. Um, I guess so. Um, I mean, I think I think it's weird. Also, by the way, want to raise one other note is people are talking about how the committee shouldn't consider matchups, right? They should just list the teams one through four in the order they think they are, and they should not worry about the fact that who you're putting one and four are going to match up and stuff like that. Do we actually think that's true? Do we think the com- I mean the committee is essentially creating a TV show, right? Oh, they that's should totally consider the matchups, right? If they if they want Oklahoma and Alabama in the final, damn, put Oklahoma and Alabama in the, on opposite sides of the bracket. Yeah, I, I don't really have a problem with that. I think that's like I think that's probably really wise to see if if you think those are the two best teams to make sure that they uh, have a pretty good chance to meet in the in the final, like you said, with a bunch of uh, historic Keith Jackson overtones. But it would be weird. But precedent for other years, it would be weird to uh, seed a team with more losses higher than a team with a greater number of losses, regardless of what you'd like in the final. And I kind of think that after a couple of years, the college football playoffs will just be this self-defining thing where everyone's going to watch the final regardless, like the Super Bowl. Sure, the Patriots or some teams will make the ratings rise a little bit. But, uh, well, I think they also have to get to the point, and they will get to the point where the game itself sells itself as opposed to the fact that you have a marquee team in there. Yeah, I think we're there. I think we're pretty much there now. You know, I think I don't even think you need. I mean, I think the committee can monkey around with it to try to, you know, put put teams with tons of national titles on the wall in the final. But I think I think right now just about everybody is going to watch uh, any combination. I mean, what's the, what's the worst combination we could have here? Was it Clemson-Michigan State, right? I think that's a pretty highly rated uh, final. Iowa Clemson would have uh, tested that even more. Maybe, maybe we can get that next year. And poor Memphis nice. got screwed. That would have been a good final. Memphis Clemson. <laughs> so, a couple of points. Um, Clemson beat Oklahoma in a bowl game last year, and they're rematching this year. Clemson won 40-6. to six. Both teams had different quarterbacks. Um, it was the Russell Athletic Bowl. It wasn't like they were playing in the semifinals. But I just wanted to note just something that I I realized deep within myself is that there is nothing more forgettable than the previous year's bowl games because they're like happening during the holidays, um, especially in like the games that aren't in the playoffs now. If you had told me that Oklahoma had in fact beat Clemson like 400 to 12, Mm -hmm. I would have totally believed that. (laughs) This has no relevance to anything we're talking about. I just wanted to make that point. That loss and that loss was, was sort of memorable in Norman because it made Bob Stoops basically retool his entire offensive staff, which then led to Oklahoma being really good this year and getting into the playoffs. Well, it's good that somebody remembered it other than me. Yeah. And I actually like Clemson. I don't really understand. I mean, I guess the like various computer rankings and stuff think that Oklahoma is really good, but just Watching Clemson play North Carolina in the ACC championship game, they have a quarterback, Deshaun Watson, who's one of these quarterbacks like, uh, you know, Vince Young or Cam Newton or, you know, Marcus Mariota, to name somebody who didn't win, who in college football, just based on his athleticism, he's a great passer, but also the system they run. It just seems like he can get a first down at will at any time. Um, And that is something that turns out to be very important being able to get a first down at will any any time and so i see them 
as a team that's going to be really hard to stop. They have great talent on defense. They have good coaching. I really despise their coach. I find uh, his like uh, you know yelling at the punter to be a little much. But I I think they're going to win. I like Clemson. By the way, to, to the despise coach uh, topic, who is the most sympathetic or likable coach in this Final Four? This is a tough question. <laughs> Dabo. Oh, my God. I would have said D'Antonio, but then the God favors us thing kind of <laughs> kind of put his uh, ranking mm-hmm. in doubt. He, I mean, no, I think from a theological point of view, I think he has good basis for that because if God, if it was just random, they would have scored on first or second down from the one. And if God was toying them, it would have been third down. So third down is the real, you know, asking Abraham to slay Isaac type God thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think that that third and one extra push, that's real. That has all the signature of uh, fingerprints of God. I and if you don't think God isn't aware that trolling is part of football, that's a proof positive. Divine intervention there, divine trolling. So, yeah. Brian Curtis, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be uh, watching the playoffs on New Year's Eve, or maybe we won't be. The fact that they're on New Year's Eve is just really dumb. Just it, it <laughs> angers me. I think I'm going to be. I think I'm going to be watching. Um, all right. Well, you'll have to let me know who won. All right. I'll t- send you text message updates. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thanks, guys. Brian Curtis writes about college football, the press, and other stuff. You can follow him. On Twitter, at Curtis Beast. On Friday in Hawaii, U.S. women's national team midfielder Megan Rapino tore her ACL during training for a friendly match that was part of the team's post-World Cup victory tour. The next day, the U.S. team went to Aloha Stadium to survey the grounds before Sunday's scheduled game against Trinidad and Tobago. They found rocks on the pitch. They found buckled artificial turf. They decided they weren't going to play, that they couldn't play under those sorts of conditions. After that decision was made, star forward Alex Morgan told Fox Sports, I think the training grounds that we were given and the playing surface of the stadium were horrible. I think it's hard because no one's really going to protect us but ourselves. So we're put in a very hard position because obviously we want to play in front of these fans and we want to train before the game. But injuries happen when you don't protect yourself, when you're not protected from those higher up from you. Joining us now by phone is Stephanie Cox a defender who played 89 games for the U.S. women, winning a gold medal at the 2008 Olympics and making the 2007 and 2011 World Cup rosters. She just retired from Seattle Reign FC of the National Women's Soccer League. And when she is not guesting on podcasts, she coaches high school soccer in Washington State. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely on this um you know, intense issue about women's rights on the soccer field. Yeah, and this is obviously not a new scenario, um, right, with the women's soccer players, the best in the world, being shunted off to substandard fields. There's a huge amount of controversy about the games and this year's uh, Women's World Cup in Canada being played on artificial turf rather than natural grass, which is the surface that's used exclusively at the top levels of the men's game. So why do you think this was the line that was drawn, this field in Hawaii? Was it simply because the turf was so bad, or was it kind of an accumulation of issues over the years? I think it probably was because the turf was was so bad, but I think it's just kind of been rising and rising. I know before this past summer's World Cup that the players had um, kind of compiled in with a group of lawyers um, were trying to, you know, push FIFA's hand on putting uh, grass on top of the turf and uh, just giving different options that have been done before and um, different places around the world to make um you know, at least the semis and the finals, the grass field rather than turf. But just seeing some of the pictures that some of the players tweeted, it just looks like in the conditions um, at Aloha Stadium just looked like it was really unsafe. And I think that it really just hit home for the players having Megan get injured. Um, I think it really kind of fired them up to and not, you know, let that happen again. And the players actually released a sort of collective statement they signed by the U.S. Mm-hmm. Women's National Team that was posted on the Players' Tribune on Sunday explaining why they decided to cancel the game. And I'm sure canceling the game is a tough thing. I mean, this is a victory tour. They're going to places where that are not traditional uh soccer outposts, places that Mm -hmm. the national teams don't visit regularly, so there are fans that really want to see these games. But as you said, Steph, it it feels like it's gotten to the point with the women that there is a frustration level building. What what is it like, and what was it like for you on the national team 
playing on these kinds of fields, knowing that there are better options out there and that it's not, you know, the, the best, safest place for most desirable place to play a game on? Yeah, in 2007 and 2008, we had victory tours and stuff in 2011. And, but the difference between 2007 to 2011 was, was massive. And just, um, you know, the fans that came in and the stadiums that we got to play at that were maybe more soccer-specific, um, like um, different MLS um, stadiums. So that was really great to not just play in huge football stadiums and stuff. But I think that, you know, the women's national team has a lot of responsibility on their shoulders just to promote um, the game, to promote their team. They have to kind of market themselves and continue to do that in these new venues. And I think that they're really savvy businesswomen and who know that, um, you know, so they wanted to take advantage of being in Hawaii and um, showing new fans um, the great, you know, game that they play. Um, and so that was probably really disappointing, but I'm glad that they, you know, kind of stuck to their guns and came together to just really kind of bring a hard line and say, wait, okay, yeah, we want to do this for our fans, but hopefully they'll understand that we need to be safe. Um, because, you know, an injury like Megan's, you know, it can affect the next tournament, and there's not really a whole lot of time. And, you know, you even see with Alex with her ankle injury how long that's taken for her to get back into her prime. And, um, you know, injuries are a really big deal for an athlete. So what has to go on systemically for this to be corrected? I mean, it would seem in the last World Cup, the U.S. women do great. They're heroes. There are complaints about... Yeah. The uh, field, the complaints aren't unwarranted, but we move on. So it would seem, I don't know exactly who's in charge. Is it the U.S. Soccer Federation? Someone should have looked at the Aloha Stadium field beforehand. It's unclear if they did. Is that what needs to go on? There needs to be a point person looking over every field and either saying it's okay or it's not okay. And if it's, and if they say it's okay and then the players get there, then that is, reflects poorly on the U.S. Federation. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, the um, the players are the ones, you know, in the limelight, and uh, maybe U.S. Soccer hopefully will, you know, get a little bit more of this, the brunt of this, um, and that'll go on them. You know, it's their responsibility to vet the field and stuff, and and maybe they need to work in more alignment with the the players' union or something. But I, you know, just read a quote that Jill said, "I don't know what their process is to pick." Yeah, these, Julie Fowdy actually, Julie Fowdy tweeted yesterday that. Uh, that, that U.S. soccer had not inspected the field, and that compares to the men where a representative flies to a stadium several months in advance before even booking a date. And my observation, Steph, is that, that the women, as they've gotten more popular and as there's this mm -hmm. desire, as you say, to sort of serve the fans, they end up playing in places like the Alamo Dome or Ford Field in Detroit or Heinz Field in Pittsburgh or the Superdome, which is where one of the next mm -hmm. Victory Tour games is scheduled to be played. And these are fields that are not great for playing soccer on. And mm -hmm. given that we've got all these soccer-specific stadiums in the country now, it does seem like U.S. soccer is going for the extra 10,000 ticket sales that you can get from playing in a bigger stadium versus playing in a 20 or 25,000-seat stadium. And that's got to be frustrating for a player. Yeah, and, and, you know, maybe those fans are new soccer fans, but they probably don't appreciate that you know, playing, you know, even though there's 10,000 more fans, if you play in a bigger stadium, it's really not a, a better experience, you know. Um, and, you know, you watch games on men's, you know, games on TV and you see them playing on grass and like, oh, that ball's going to roll out of bounds. not going to be able to get to that. Oh, but they can slide and get the cross in because it just dies. It just, you know, so just the, the style of soccer that can be played on grass is just so much better. And, you know, so they're really sacrificing that quality of um, play um, even for those fans for those extra 10,000 tickets and, you know, maybe raise the prices of the tickets, you know, if you want it to be 25,000 seat stadium instead of a 35 a year that you're going to get bigger, you know, because they're so um, valuable now, you know, these, everyone wants to come and see these women, which is an awesome place for them to have built, you know, up um, their value. Um, but they got to be rewarded for that on the playing surface and stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, I was really disappointed with U.S. soccer with these venues because, you know, all the changes going on in FIFA and the, the issue of that the girls had brought before before the World Cup and, um, you know, wanting to bring it to court in Canada, you know, I really thought it was an opportunity for U.S. soccer to step up and say, hey, you know, we really support our women's teams for these last, you know, I wouldn't say 
15, 20 years and really kind of pioneered the way with how with the contracts and how often the women get together and let's do this next step with the fields that they play on. And, you know, they really missed it. They really uh, missed that opportunity to kind of step out in front and be um, a leader for, for FIFA um, with these changes that are going to be happening, hopefully. Yeah, and kind of two points I wanted to make. First is that not just in women's soccer, but in any sport, when you try to play in an exotic locale or bring a sport to a place that it's not traditionally played, I'm not trying to say like Hawaii is like Mm -hmm. outer Mongolia or something, but, um, you know, in college basketball, they played a game in Japan this year on a military base, Gonzaga and Pitt, and they had to cancel the game at halftime because the floor was too slippery. I also think of like games in college basketball, like on an aircraft carrier, where I think they had to cancel a game. And the contrast is one that you brought up, Stephanie. It's that in those cases, you don't have like the, maybe it's because it's a college thing versus a pro thing, but it seemed like the women um, on the team like really had to bear the brunt of making the decision here. Like in the college basketball thing, they're quoting like the coaches, they're quoting the the teams. It wasn't like Gonzaga's Kyle Wilcher like said he was going to get injured, and so that's why they had to cancel the game. It's like it, it seems like kind of an abdication of responsibility by those who should be responsible, and and that kind of leads into my second point, which is that for women, and like Cheryl Sandberg has written about this a lot. There's this kind of tension where if you are seen as bossy, then that's seen as bad, um, and I could kind of see that a little bit under the surface in the Players Tribune letter, which is like these women are trying to grapple with how to deal with their power because they don't want the fans to think that they don't want to play in front of them. And it's almost like it's obviously this was the right decision and this is what they needed to do Mm -hmm. for their help. But there's almost like we don't want to let people down. We want to, you know, play in front of these people who want to see us play. And so I could kind of see a little of that tension there. Yeah, definitely. Um, the players have just, you know, struggled for a long time because, you know, you have a, a players union and, you know, your boss is U.S. soccer, but how do you, you know, there's power and, and unity in the team, you know, so if you can stick together, you can kind of get the, more things done. And, you know, that's been done in the past to help set contracts and stuff um, to kind of have like a boycott in a way or something, you know, so it was nice to see that, you know, Jill was on board and that U.S. soccer agreed, okay, these aren't um, conditions, but, you know, just unfortunate that U.S. soccer put the players in the position to have to be the first ones to step up, you know, and say that and make that happen, you know, a day before the game. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous, honestly. You know, I feel bad for the fans, and obviously the girls um, did too. But, yeah, there is that tension, like you are saying, for, for women because they appreciate that, you know, 15,000 fans were coming to the game in a new place in Hawaii, and that that was a big deal. And they don't want to take that for granted. Um, but it's an, also an opportunity, hopefully, to make uh, the situation better, the environment better for them in the future. Was there any backlash? I don't know. We'll see. And hopefully, I, I hopefully there's backlash on U.S. soccer, and it embarrasses them, and that they just want to do a better job. Because I don't know um, if the next venues are great. You know, we talked about the Alamo Dome before. I, I don't know when they've redone their their artificial surface. And so I think Jill said, or they, the players said, it wasn't a difference between turf and grass. You know, which is that's a kind of an ongoing issue. But that the turf was added to the the field at the um, Aloha Stadium, and so it was. You know, there were seams that could get caught or whatever. It was just not not safe. So, but I think uh, overall, the point that the players are making is that we do need to strive for better equity with the men. Uh, Carly mm-hmm. Lloyd, the star of the World Cup, tweeted out, so over the turf, eight out of ten victory tour games on turf. U.S. soccer, I think, has a responsibility, as you, as, you, as you point out, Stephanie. This is the most successful, potentially the most, arguably the most successful U.S. national team ever in some ways. Consistency mm-hmm. over the years, over the, the last couple decades. Um, mm-hmm. And to have them sort of relegated and treated uh, unequally and unfairly and from what it looks like to me, the governing body just basically trying to make a buck over uh, or make a few extra bucks from the team on on this kind of a tour is kind of embarrassing. I mean, soccer is, as as, as you know, from growing up in the sport in in the 90s and 2000s. I mean, it's at a place of tremendous growth and you guys helped to to get it there. And it seems like there should Mm -hmm. be 
some stand taken, as you seem to be advocating. Yeah, there needs to be a new process um, to pick these games, you know, because it's hopefully going to happen again after the Olympics. Um, you know, that's in the players' contract to have these games, to get them exposed to, to make more money um, from these games. Um, and there needs to be a new process where, you know, whoever's picking these venues, you know, meets with the players union rep and says, okay, these are, these are the criteria we look at, you know, and that there's, um, a collaborative process, you know, with the, with someone having the player's interest in mind, because obviously that hasn't happened. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, they just leave the press officer to answer rather than the president on this big issue, um, which would have been nice to hear from Sunil, but they blew it. I will thank you so much, Stephanie. Congratulations on a great uh, career. You just retired. I hope the high school team that you coach plays on the best field in all of the state of Washington. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, up in the Northwest, I think. Um, you know, I got to play college down at University of Portland, and we always had that beautiful grass that I loved. But now I'm realizing, wait, that is so rare. But uh, yeah, no, thank you for discussing this issue and just, um, yeah, gender equality with the field and playing conditions for soccer players. I appreciate it. Stephanie Cox was a defender for the U.S. women's national soccer team. Uh, she won a gold medal at the 2008 Olympics. On Sunday in the Superdome, the Carolina Panthers beat the New Orleans Saints 41-38, to because who doesn't score 41 points on that fucking defense this season? Uh, to go to 12-0 on the year, who dat? Uh, the Panthers, the league's only undefeated team, have clinched the NFC South division title for the third straight year, they've now won 16 straight regular season games since starting last year, 3-8-1. and one. But that bad start last year is looking more and more like an outlier. They went 12-4 in 2013. They won their last four regular season games and a playoff game in 2014. They now need wins over just three mediocre teams, the Bucks, the Giants, and the Falcons, who they're playing twice. There's some good the scheduling, huh? Yeah. And... They do that, they'll get the league's first perfect regular season since the 2007 Patriots. Uh, but still, this team is getting disrespected in the media, probably because of East Coast bias. Those famed hot take artists at 538.com wrote last week that the Panthers are the worst team to ever start 11-0. Now that they won again, I bet they're the worst team to ever start 12-0. North Carolina does touch the Atlantic Ocean, I think. <laughs> East Coast bias. They have a charismatic star quarterback in Cam Newton. They've got a charismatic star defensive player, linebacker Luke Keekley. All they do is win, 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 no matter what. So why do you hate them, Mike? Sorry. I tried to auto-tune that for you. <laughs> yeah? Why do, why do you hate them, DJ Khaled? Why do you hate them? Why do I hate I them? So. Yeah. Because as we know, they're going to get a first or second round matchup with the 85 Bears of the 72 <laughs> Dolphins. So the fact that they're the worst undefeated team will really matter. <laughs> All right. I think this is what I think. They are a good team, but they don't seem great. So it's fair to point out that they have flaws and that they've played a relatively weak schedule. Although the reason it's relatively weak, and this gets me to the broader thesis, our hatred of them is a manifestation of our disdain as fans of what has either happened to the NFL or somewhat coincidentally is happening to the NFL this year, the mediocrity of the NFL. So when you have a mediocre NFL, I guess if you're a Jets fan and Giants fan, you could say, hey, that was a well-played game between two really exquisitely mediocre teams. So on the individual scale, every fan can think hard about his own team and say, oh, it's so frustrating they couldn't just win those two games or, oh, even though they're doing bad, if they win two more, they could make the playoffs. That's how you deal with your own team. How you deal with the entire state of football is not to say I hate football, but to know deep down that this is a mediocre season and what's the representation of that? That the great team of this season, the Panthers, really is, seems to you a bit mediocre. So you say it louder than you would if it were a different team in a different year, I believe. What do you mean by mediocre? Mediocre is there are fewer double-digit team win teams at this point than any time in NFL season. That what the apologists call parity, everyone else would just call mediocrity. That there is other than the Patriots and 
the Denver defense, and I guess, yeah, we'll say it, the Panthers. There just doesn't seem to be that many good teams, and people don't like it when there aren't that many good teams. And so we're taking out on the Panthers and acting like they're not that good a team, even though they're undefeated. Well, That's what I think. There were more undefeated teams like late in the season than in any other year in NFL history. Yeah, there it, also, are. It, seems to, it sounds to me like you're saying... The Panthers are mediocre because they're the Panthers. No, because think, they're at the top of this mediocre heap, the top of the mediocre. I think that's part of it. I mean, Cam Newton has been anything but mediocre. I mean, he's been an offensive production machine, both passing, running, um, controlling the offense. I mean, you read stories. Ranks 20th out of 31 uh, passers in QBR. But he is leading. This team scores a lot of points. He ranks low, but by all measurements... All he, all he does is no, win. All he does is win. No, why does he rank All he low? does is throw touchdown passes. Come on, why this does he like rank low? This is like the circular logic segment to end all circular logic No, this segments. is not a Tebow segment. Is... Why does he rank low? Why does he why rank does he low? Rank because low? He, he's an incredibly inaccurate no, passer. No, that is not true. His receivers drop the ball a lot. He's mm-hmm. not inaccurate. How do you judge? I mean, there's a way, and football outsiders have done this, and they look at games. He's putting the ball... Maybe not in a shoebox, but he's putting the ball where good receivers should catch it and where mediocre receivers shouldn't even drop it as much. He has a terrible cadre of receivers. I also think it's partly perception. It's that the Carolina Panthers have been in the NFL for 20 years, Mm -hmm. and we do not consider them. We don't think of them as a powerhouse football team. And we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to other teams like New England or any of the traditional franchises, Green Bay even. You know, everyone's ready to re-anoint Green Bay after the Hail Mary last Thursday night that gave them uh, an unexpected win. And And I think that that is part of it. I think we have in our minds, we are sort of preset to believe which to think which teams are great or have the potential for true greatness and which aren't. And it takes an awful lot, like in basketball with the Golden State Warriors, to overturn these these perceptions that are formulated over decades. So Cam Newton ranked 32nd overall out of 36 in terms of bad throw percentage. This is according to Football Outsiders. I think you're right that his receivers are terrible and it makes them look even worse than he is, but he is not an accurate, he is an accurate passer compared to like 99.9% of humans, but by the standard oh, of NFL oh, quarterbacks. Humans, I thought you were going to say compared to, you know, at least uh, <laughs> Ryan Tannehill or yeah, Tannehill's not even a good example. So Drew Brees, yeah. to compare him to the most accurate passer in the NFL, Drew Brees last year, his bad throw percentage was 10.6%. Cam Newton's was 21.1%. So he's like twice as bad or his passes are twice as inaccurate or I'm not, I'm saying this wrong, but the percentage it's bad. It's a bad percentage, but he uh, is good at running. That's good. He is very good at running and all, and he, the entire trend of the hybrid quarterback seems to have blown up along with RG three's legs and along with Colin Kaepernick's ability to be the throwing part of the hybrid. So Wilson's good, but you know, Cam has never stopped being the really forceful quarterback. I think his body type, um, you know, prevents injuries much more than RG's three, RG3. But he is an exciting quarterback. And, I mean, he threw five touchdowns against mm-hmm. both the second-worst defense in NFL history and the second-worst defense in the NFL this year because the Giants <laughs> ain't good either. The Giants are, and, Do you know the Giants are going to be the first team to give up over 300 yards a game passing ever? I've, I, uh, I'm excited about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a great milestone. Peter King wrote a piece on uh, Monday Morning Quarterback on Sports Illustrated's website that sort of broke down why Cam Newton has gotten better, and maybe it doesn't manifest in in passer rating type statistics. <laughs> but he cites a bunch of things. Uh, he's better throwing on the run, better at running the offense, better at integrating a no huddle offense into the way the team plays. He's just gotten better, and maybe those things don't translate to sort of Brady Manning Rogers type statistics, but. He's also throwing a lot of touchdowns, and he's running for touchdowns in almost every game. Um, and I think that contributes to their greatness, too. And their defense is terrific. All right. Here's my my theory. I think that the Panthers do not get the love, appreciation, and respect because they're kind of the off-brand Seahawks. And it took a while mm-hmm. for the Seahawks. Like the first year that the Seahawks were really good in the Russell Wilson's rookie year, there was a lot of skepticism because they were winning a lot based on defense and Wilson was kind of similar to Cam Newton in that he comes up with a lot of uh, big plays. He gets first downs running, uh, but his statistics are not 
great compared to, you know, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. And it takes a while for teams like that to play well, succeed consistently for, I think, just the general NFL fan to believe that it's not a fluke. And that three, eight, and one, the one, I think it was the tie that really threw people off. That really bad start for the Panthers kind of obscured their longer run of success. And they kind of had to restart proving themselves. And this year, it's basically they're coming off being a bad team or the perception of being a bad team. And that's not actually true. Um, And they're not blowing teams out. They're not like beating teams by 20 points a game like the 2007 Patriots where they don't have even the best point differential in the NFL this year. They're behind the Bengals and the Cardinals and they haven't played that tough a schedule. And so they're not like at the top of the football outsiders DVOA standing. In fact, they're behind the Kansas City Chiefs. (laughs) So you might you might want to have a conversation with those uh, standings. Yeah. But that's an example of something that it's like the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence like people you can't really discredit the panthers by saying oh they haven't played anyone tough it's like okay well maybe that means we should wait until they do play someone tough and then we can decide if they're really great or not it's not they played seattle and green bay well yeah, they beat the, <laughs> they beat the green bay seemed good up until that hail mary <laughs> right yeah well, they beat green did, bay listen, did seattle look good when they beat them they no. right they, that's right it's funny because they will have these teams they beat green bay when green bay was was they stopped a decent green bay role maybe it's not that they were mediocre but for four game stretches teams show they're okay but the falcons uh were a winning team uh, before this week and when they play the panthers they will be a losing team i am sure because they've gotten worse as the season gone has gone along so in general, not only have they beat rather poor teams, they've even beaten good teams who weren't playing well at the time. But I do think the Seahawks comparison is an interesting one because it is fascinating that in this era of the NFL where the passing game is so dominant, the Panthers have the highest percentage of running plays in the league. They run, I think, even more than they pass, which is absurd in this era. It's like an NBA team you know, being the best team in the league without shooting any threes. It's like it's bizarre. Um, but the Seahawks kind of showed that you can win by having a great defense, a, a dominant running game, and a quarterback who makes key plays when you need the quarterback to make key plays. So there is a template there. It seems like the degree of difficulty for pulling it off is high. And so I think naturally the skepticism is high and, and should be there. Um, because as we all know, Mike, Cam Newton is not an accurate passer. Yeah. I think that, well, he's a good weapon. He's the bacteria in their yogurt. You know what I'm saying? I think that, <laughs> I do think that there was a lot of residual anti-cam sentiment based on college and people wanting him not to be a good quarterback in the NFL because it seems He smiles like, a lot. Well, yeah. And even when he sat down with Gruden, he seemed to say a lot of the wrong things, like I've never looked mm-hmm. at a second option. So the <laughs> I think I think it's a combination of the NFL non-geeks are like, oh, who the hell is this team? And the NFL geeks can't say actually you're wrong let's get behind them and also unlike the undefeated warriors tough comparison visually pleasant team to look at Mm -hmm. don't know if the panthers bring that yes a little bit even though it's the nfl where superstars can exist in places like pittsburgh and indianapolis i do think the carolina-ness of it doesn't help them not to say that they're that much beyond uh, behind the eight ball, but they aren't in a huge city where you're naturally going to have people talking you up when maybe you don't deserve it. Right. And they, they play in what this year is a weak division with Tampa Bay, Atlanta, and New Orleans, and their out-of-division division opponents is the AFC South, where no team is above 500. There you go. Skepticism. Warranted skepticism. I think that there's no better example of a player being the off-brand version of another player than Josh Norman and Richard Sherman. Josh Norman, like by all the statistics, is just having an insanely Mm -hmm. good year as a cornerback. I read some article that quarterbacks would do better just to spike the ball into the ground rather than throw it towards Josh Norman. But And he like calls himself the Dark Knight and is really into superheroes. Such an off-brand Richard Sherman. It's mm-hmm. like, come on, man, he you got to elevate your, you got to elevate your talk. He's got to play up the uh, the Batman thing. He does. Yeah. All right, let's move on to afterballs, and you can overthink these afterball names. We've can all we? been guilty of it. <laughs> We've all been guilty mm-hmm. of that. 
but I'm going to go with a very simple one this week. The Carolina Panthers mascot is Sir Purr. The Panthers website says he has nimble feet, a great smile, and one huggable belly. Aww, not one of these two? mascots with yeah, multiple two huggable, two huggable bellies. bellies. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, he also caused a stir. So that was a Sir Purr stir. In a 1996 game against the Steelers, went on a punt. He jumped on the ball in the end zone. Uh, live ball? <laughs> even though it was a live ball. I thought it was a live it. grenade. <laughs> he was trying to protect the Panthers teammates. He prevented one at what could have been one of the biggest uh, atrocities in an NFL mm -hmm. stadium. So thank you for that, Sir Purr. Mike, what is your Sir Purr? So let's talk bowl games. We all know the big ones, the Capital One Orange Bowl, the Cotton Bowl named after Goodyear. Goodyear certainly deserves some football associations. Capital One, they bought their way in. This is how it works. I don't want my tires made of cotton, though. That's true. Good point. <laughs> so then uh, the other big six games, the games they're telling us, oh, these are the important ones, they all have names that we could relate to that we know, the Sugar Bowl, the Rose Bowl. These are great estimable names. The Fiesta Bowl has gotten there. It's it's judging by the granddaddy of them all, a somewhat new kid on the block. But like the new kids on the block themselves, they are the chief and the elder statesman among the boy band of the new bowl games. And of course, the Peach Bowl, renamed the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl after a hateful anti-gay chicken place. But what are some of the other bowl games? Well, we talked about how much you like a good athletic bowl in the Russell Athletic Bowl. Do you like a reserved bowl? Because early on, on December 19th, you're going to get the Air Force Reserve Celebration Bowl. <laughs> Wait, what's a reserve celebration? Is that as quiet, understated? Rah, rah. Oh, I get it. I'm putting the comma in the wrong place. It's the Air Force Reserve Celebration Bowl. Then there's something called the Cure Bowl. Do you want to guess what they're curing, guys? What are we always curing when they, we say we're curing in the meat. world of sports? They're curing meat. <laughs> that would be good. It's the, it's the race to cure breast cancer. Uh, I don't know why it's being just called the Cure Bowl. I am sure the title sponsor, AutoNation, would like us to say it's the AutoNation Cure Bowl. Another trend in bowls are bowl games with Z's and V's in the name, like the AdvoCare V100 Texas Bowl. V100 be the third caller to win a seat to the AdvoCare V100 Texas Bowl. And the Nova Home Loans Arizona Bowl. Don't know much about Nova Home Loans. I went to their website. They say Nova Home Loans sponsored by Family. Nova Home Loans, brought to you by New Beginnings. Well, I'm not sure how much New Beginnings paid for that sponsorship, but Nova Home Loans paid for the Arizona Bowl. And in regulator news, they might have to pay $50 million to the federal government, according to Tucson Today. Nova in dispute over down payment assistance practices. And more recently, Nova Home Loans has been named in a federal audit. There might be some chicanery with the Nova Home Loans. I hope that means a lot of trick plays on two-point conversions. There's another bowl game. Sometimes, well, let me just say I just didn't know a bunch of these brands. The Foster's Farms Bowl, they make chickens, good to know. The Marmot Boca Raton Bowl, like what's Marmot? I looked it up. It's that warm clothing company. I'm like, I know them. Just when you put them next to a bowl, I don't think I know them. The R&L Carriers Bowl, it's like freight trains and shipping. The Royal Purple Las Vegas Bowl, less said about that, the best. And my new favorite, the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl. What is Zaxby's? Zaxby's is a fast, casual chicken place. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. Zaxby's claims to offer zappetizers and salads. But it's got XYZ in its name, which is pretty cool. It does have XYZ, though not in that order. Washington is playing in the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl. There is not a Zaxby's within, as far as I could tell, almost a thousand miles of Washington. And if you take away the two Zaxby's locations, if you look at the map of where Zaxby's are, there are a couple between Salt Lake City and Provo, and then not one for thousands of miles until you get to Oklahoma. Zaxby's, Zappetizers, Zalads. I think I'm going to be Zick. Stefan, what is your surper? Well, I was in Springfield, Massachusetts last week, and I was eating lunch in a deli. And on the counter, there was a hard copy of the sports section of the local newspaper, the Springfield Republican. Down the left side of the front page ran the words of the featured columnist. His name was Gary Brown. His column had a name, too, Hitting to All Fields. 
and I read with interest, not just because hitting the all field is an excellent name for a sports column, and not just because by the looks of his photo, Gary Brown was an older gentleman, but because each paragraph appeared to be one or sometimes two short sentences or sentence fragments alternating between Latin and boldface type, each a single fact or thought or question. Just sitting and wondering, it began, if the Red Sox will make more blockbuster news at the winter meetings. By the way, Tom Brady has a 2-6 and six record in Denver. Fenway is a fabulous football venue? Yes, indeed. That Athole-Mahar rivalry started as Athole-Orange in 1894. Athole? It's a town in Massachusetts. <laughs> okay. Slippery Rock 41, Assumption 39, Playoff Thriller, Division II style. Thanks to Sir Andy Murray, Team Britain has its first Davis Cup since 1936. Oh, those hot and cold Celtics. <laughs> December 7, 1963, clock runs out with Army on the two-yard line in a 21-15 loss to Navy. Homeland has me hooked again. <laughs> Where have you gone, Bronco Horvath? As a kid, I loved this sort of sports columning. Those guys knew so much, so much about so many sports, Josh, all at once, right there in one column. Two years ago, on the 40th anniversary of hitting to all fields, Gary Brown gave a tip of the hat to legendary New York sports writer Jimmy Cannon for pioneering the I can't come up with an actual column, so here's a bunch of random stuff. Column, Cannon's working-class space fillers usually were not about sports, and they opened Nobody Asked Me, but people who crush cigarettes in butter plates ought to be barred from every restaurant in town. Most small-time sports finish off a night of drinking with chop suey. Anyone who can drink whiskey out of a paper cup qualifies for Alcohol Anonymous. Thank you, Jimmy Cannon. In the age of the online listicle, we should all be grateful. And after reading about him, I am genuinely awed that Gary Brown is still hitting to all fields. He joined the Springfield paper as an 18-year-old sports writer in 1950 and retired 59 years later. He must have thought better of that because now in his mid-80s, Brown is still cranking out his weekly random thoughts and much more the history of this high school football rivalry or that team reunion, this local legend who's still alive or that one who's not, about the mill where he worked at 17 that's now an art museum or the death of his faithful lab, Venus. He wrote 10 stories in 11 days in October. Roger Angel Gary Brown ain't, but hitting to all fields is a sports writing time capsule, a living headstone for an innocent, uncomplicated, prelapsarian way of considering the sporting life. Each column starts the same way, just sitting and wondering if lefty David Price would be just right for the Red Sox. Brown's very first hitting to all fields on November 19th, 1973 started just sitting and wondering if Fran Tarkenton will march through Georgia tonight. That column included this classic piece of Bostoniana. If Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would hustle half as much as Dave Cowens does, he'd be the best basketball player ever. And this one. I wonder what would happen if a boy demanded to play in that new Springfield Girls Hockey League. But also there was this. If you can get up early on the next three Sundays, there's some excellent touch football playoff action available. Those guys play for real. How do you not love a guy who in 2015 references a horse bet in every column? Ye old handicapper came up a loser with Floridora. Hooray! Frosty Margarita won one for ye old handicapper. Or includes a regular one-liner that starts, you're getting old if, and another starting, grandpa's a fan of, and one starting, honk if you love, or who two lines from the end always submits a potential name of the year candidate, Add Hayden Hawkey, Providence College goaltender, to my list of favorite sports names, or plugs community news like Big Band Music comes to the Palmer Historical and Cultural Center Thursday at 7, or offers book reviews. Daniel James Brown recalls 1936 Olympic rowing in The Boys in the Boat. I hope Gary Brown hits to all fields forever. Josh, what's your surper? The Golden State Warriors won again on Sunday night to move to 22-0. and They beat the Brooklyn Nets to extend their record for the best start to any season by a North American pro sports team. The Warriors are outscoring opponents by 15 per game, which is more than the undefeated Carolina Panthers are outscoring their opponents by. And in football, you can score in such a way that you get seven points at once. Steph Curry, who it kind of feels like is on his way to figuring out how to score seven points at once. Oh, my God. They would score so many points if it was football. Um, he has 116 three-pointers through 22 games which is just a bit ahead of second place Paul George, who has 64. On 538, Benjamin Morris wrote a piece arguing that Curry defies 
the laws of efficiency that unlike every other player, he actually shoots better when he shoots more or he doesn't shoot worse, at least. Um, it would be better for his team, too, if Curry just kept on shooting, just shot every shot. Uh, the man averages 32 points a game in just 34 minutes. He would probably average 50 if he wanted to. Where I'm going with this is that winning is too easy for the Warriors. Basketball is too easy for the Warriors and Steph Curry. While I'm enjoying them more than probably any other team I've ever seen, I'm getting greedy. I want them to play even better. I want them to do even crazier and stranger things rather than sit their best players in the fourth quarter because they already have a 30-point lead. So here's the analogy I came up with. In video games, if you're really great, like you're that kid that Fred Savage totes around in The Wizard, then winning the game isn't a particular challenge, so people impose challenges on themselves, like beating Super Mario Brothers with the lowest score possible by not getting any coins, not killing any of the enemies, finishing every level with zero seconds on the clock. And I want to pause right here and apologize to gamers because all of my references are about 25 or 30 years old. <laughs> but I asked my friends, uh, James Carmichael and Chris Solentrop, who have actually played games in the last two decades. James pointed me to a post about a guy who beat a very difficult game called Dark Souls without using his hands, only using voice commands. And that sounds like something Steph Curry should really try to do. Uh, and the aforementioned Mr. Solentrop, he writes about games and hosts a great podcast called Shall We Play a Game? He noted that the Xbox has something called Xbox Achievements, which is a meta competition that Xbox describes as giving you extra points or rewards for completing special activities in a game. So he suggested the NBA should start something called NBA Achievements, which would reward teams for doing weird shit independent of if they win or lose an individual game. So it would be something like the Champions League, which runs concurrent to the international soccer season, except in this era where we're concerned about things like injuries and players getting tired, no one would actually have to play any extra games. So I'm not sure exactly how this would work. Maybe the NBA would come up with challenges specifically calibrated to the strengths and weaknesses of every team. So the Sixers could have a challenge like win a game. Um, but I've gone to the trouble of coming up with some Warrior-specific achievements, things I'd like to see them try and do. They would get bonus points for doing this. They, they would get a big trophy at the end of the year if they achieved enough of these. Um, so two obvious ones to start out with. Can they win a game only shooting three-pointers? Mm. No twos mm -hmm. or free throws allowed. Can they win a game where only Steph and Curry shoots? No other player is allowed to shoot. They can take him out of the game but no one can shoot when he's off the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and then I asked some of my Slate colleagues, you guys can come up with your own at the end of this list, what are some other Warriors NBA achievements you'd like to see them unlock? Uh, my colleague Lowen says no dribbling, just only passing through the air. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan Coy suggests the other team can play however they want to play, but the Warriors can only play based on the earliest rules of the, the of women's basketball where you can't guard the other team or talk on the court and the center can't shoot and you uh, can't dribble. And you can't, like some of them can't go over half yeah, you, court. Exactly. Because that um, would affect their ability to give birth. <laughs> we don't want Stephen Curry's uterus to fall out. Um, Seth Stevenson suggests the other team gets a 24-second clock. The Warriors only get an eight-second clock. Um, Will Dobson says... All free throws taken with eyes closed, uh, no substitutions, no shoes allowed, only play in your socks, mm -hmm. only play with five fouls, and if someone fouls out, they must be replaced by a fan chosen at random from the crowd. I like this one from Seth Maxson. They, all, all their players have to wear jeans. <laughs> Not shorts? Not shorts. Full, full, full length jeans. Do you have any ideas, Mike? Uh, during every stoppage of play, they have to plank the whole time. Um, <laughs> I like that. The Phoenix, mm -hmm. the Phoenix Suns gorilla gets to be inserted the uh, as per the other team coaches choosing for any ten minute stretch of the game, with with trampoline or without. The, he oh, he's, the, he's the gorilla. He gets to bring his trampoline. The Warriors' defensive assignment has to be alphabetical, so that could dictate the matchup. You have to guard whoever is closest to you alphabetically. Mm -hmm. Three point shots. For the Warriors only count as one. See so yeah, how that would affect their game. <laughs> That's interesting. Move the three-point line out four more feet. Actually, three-point line according to each his own ability. So Draymond Green could have the regular three-point <laughs> line, but Steph Curry would have to be a 38-foot three-point line. Would, Do you have any but that would spread the court even more. That might be worse for opponents. 
I think it should be like hockey. They're so good. They should be penalized. So maybe have to play four on five for stretches of the game. Maybe the first and third quarter, four on five, and then the second and fourth, three on five. Um, I think that would that would be good. Um, the, the Warriors' handicap is that they have to play mm-hmm. exactly how Kings owner Vivek Ranadive would want his team to play in like an ideal world. Mm-hmm. So just pressing everywhere, four on five defense. I think co-ed. There should be. They should be. The Warriors should be a co-ed basketball team. You have to have two women on the court at all times. They could be any women. They could be professional basketball players. They don't have to be that. I would. I would recommend that if you want to win. Or, or wife or girlfriend has to be on the court at the same time as or, two of the players. Or same-sex partner. Or same-sex partner. Has to be on the, same, the court at the same time as uh, at least two of your players. The half of the court that the Warriors play on has to be uh, the stadium at the Aloha Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this would work best, and all these ideas are great and realistic, and I think something that Adam Silver is thinking about as he's listening to this afterball. But I think the best kinds of achievements or challenges like this are ones where the fans announcers on the opposing team would sort of figure it out after like two or three minutes where the Warriors wouldn't announce it. The NBA wouldn't announce it. They're like, wait a second. What are they trying to do? Are they only shooting three-pointers? Are they are they only wearing jeans? Right. That would be so hard <laughs> to spot. But if you have to actually like paint on a new three-point line, yeah. that could be logistically difficult. Well, but if a member of the opposing team is the one to suss out what game the Warriors are playing, they should get five points. I don't think you'd need to paint on a three-point line, though. It would be sort of like as if they were a theatrical company. There are X's on the court that the, 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 the stadium guy oh, can they're marks. lay down. Right, right, they're marks. Yeah. They have to hit from their marks. <laughs> or like that. They'd have to hit from – they can only shoot from a particular mark. There are five X's on the court, and that's where they have to shoot from. A lot of great ideas here. If you have other ideas, post them on our Facebook page. Send them to hangup at slate.com. Xbox is probably going to sponsor this. I just want 15% of the annual sponsorship proceeds. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.